You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sore Sessions. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hello, Dr. Trish. We have two guests with us today, Dr. Trish. Wonderful, Jeff. Two distinguished guests that are going to talk about a topic that I find really interesting, and it's something that's... um, pretty mainstream, and it's not corona. (laughs) And it's definitely not controversial. Not at all, just barely controversial. Today, we are going to talk about concussions, and we have two experts with us. First is Dr. Brandon Larkin. Hi, guys. Dr. Larkin is a board-certified, fellowship-trained orthopedic doctor that specializes in concussions. His office is over in St. Peter's, Missouri. It's uh, Advanced Bone and Joint. Correct, yeah. And Dr. Larkin is also uh, one of the consulting team physicians regarding concussions for the St. Louis Cardinals. Then we also have Miss Kinsey Schaus, who is a physical therapist from Cora Physical Therapy, and she specializes in physical therapy for vestibular disorders, and concussions fall into that. That's a big word. Vestibular. I've practiced all night. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I've known Dr. Larkin um, a little bit around town, and um, I know that he specializes in concussions and sees a lot of the athletes um, in, in the St. Louis area for concussion management. So uh, we sent a call out and asked him to come in because I think that there's a lot of confusion still with concussions. And there's um, a lot more controversy on what's the right way to manage them. Seems like, I don't know, for a while there, it seemed like every other week there was something coming out that told you, do this, don't do that. So how to evaluate different nuances in treatment, nuances in how to return them to an athlete to play, right. or even a, you know the weekend warrior who wants to go back to work. So I have kids that are school-aged athletes, and they play a lot of sports. And then uh, most particularly, I have a nine-year-old son that is begging me to play football, and I won't let him. So Dr. Larkin is going to make a big change in my life today, potentially, depending on what he says. But when my wife and I had the discussion about our nine-year-old, I know that we're not alone in that group of parents that's like, hey, there's all this stuff. How do you weed through all this information? And then is it right for a nine-year-old to play tackle football? Um, And so we brought Dr. Larkin in, I guess. So let's let's start We brought Dr. Larkin in to answer whether or not your son should play football. (laughs) Thank you. This is a free Great use of your time. You're going to be disappointed. (laughs) This is a a free consult. Right, right. (laughs) So Dr. Larkin, let's start with the basics. Mm -hmm. What... What is a concussion? I mean, I think everybody kind of knows, but it seems like the definition may be shifting a little bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd even say that most people know, but some don't, right? So so it's an injury to the brain, but it doesn't have to result from a hit to the head. And that that's an important point, right? Because I have people that come in and, and say, well, I was in a car accident or I didn't hit my head. How could I have a concussion? Well, it's anything that causes the brain to move in the skull, right? So anything that it causes a shifting of, of the axons or the, or the neurons, the brain cells, that can 
basically cause a functional problem. So people also would say, well, I got a CT scan in the, in the ER and it showed I didn't have a concussion. Well, you won't see a concussion on a CT scan. It's not a bleed. It's not something, it's not something you can see. It's a functional problem. So the chemicals in the brain get kind of just messed up in where they are in the cells. So for example, if this particular ion sodium is supposed to be inside the cell, it rushes out of the cell and potassium rushes in and everything gets kind of messed up. It's kind of like a snow globe. You're just shaking everything up. And part of the, the, tr- the training to get people better is to let that snow globe kind of settle down. The problem is, as they continue to push through and, and, and do activities that stimulate the brain, they shake up the snow globe again. So a lot of that has to uh, rely on some um, appropriate use of, of relative rest. So you touch on that there is, there's no testing for our medical test like an MRI or a CAT scan for it. So how do you make the diagnosis? So uh, there's no imaging. Um, imaging. Yeah. So, so it really comes down to a clinical diagnosis. That's why it's important to, to get to someone who kind of knows what they're doing. A good athletic trainer on the sideline in the high schools or, you know, in some of the gymnastics gyms, they have athletic trainers on, on the, the sideline uh, to kind of evaluate those kids when they get hurt. Uh, or a physician who knows what they're doing, you know, a primary care doc, um, someone like me who's trained like this, a neurologist, or an ER doc who's who's in the know. When I started in St. Peter's, well, like 13 years ago, um, you know, a lot of the ER docs out there were kind of using the old data. And so trying to teach them, this is the update, this is what we should be looking for, is important. Because I still occasionally will get someone saying, well, yeah, the ER told me I didn't have a concussion, or, or I do have a concussion, but I can go back to play football in a week. Well, I can't make that determination depending on, on the, the symptoms are gone. So it really does take, you know, someone who knows what they're doing because I need to look for particular things on physical exam, you know, in their eyes, how their, how their balance is. And we run, you know, in, in my office, we run people through a full evaluation looking at memory, concentration, balance, eye movement, you know, neurologic function where, you know, if, you, if you're, you know, having someone that's trying to have a coach figure that out on the sideline, they're obviously going to miss that. Are there any blood tests? It's a great, yeah. It's a great question, and right now the answer is no. Um, uh, They look at two things, tau protein, which is a a waste product in the brain, and then um, NFL, which is neurofilament light. It's a a protein that's made by the brain. There's a lot of different data that says that some of those go up, some of those go down immediately after an injury, but they're not that statistically significant yet to really put it into a lot of use. So stay tuned. I think that's probably where the next frontier is on figuring out, you know, how to make that diagnosis. Um, I'd love it if I could just do a blood test and say, yep, you got one or you don't, and to help grade the, the severity of it. So one question that comes up in the office is how much of that shakeup in the brain has to happen before you can have symptoms? It's different for everyone, right? And it's different not only for you versus me, but it's different for me on the first concussion compared to me on the second concussion. You know, it, it doesn't, uh, there's no one particular threshold. In fact, there's been studies done um, thinking that we could put uh, force monitors in helmets where we could see, okay, this was an amount of force that should or could cause a concussion, so we're going to check that, that athlete. Some of them had no symptoms. Some of them had symptoms on, on less than that threshold. So it really depends. There's no good answer. And um, for each person, you could have six concussions with minimal uh, um, symptoms right. or two concussions with severe symptoms. Right. And the danger is, you know, again, this is generally, but, but more equals worse, right? So the more of these you get, the threshold for injury decreases, plus the fact that you, you know, will likely have more severe symptoms, more prolonged symptoms. But I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient come in, they've had 
three or four and they've all gotten better at two or three days and I've gotten one that or I have another patient who has one and they take six months to get better. How long does it take to develop symptoms from a concussion after injury? Typically, it's it's relatively um, quickly. Um, you're going to have the initial kind of uh, post-traumatic migraine, the headache, the uh, vision issues, the the balance issues, dizziness, fogginess, the cognitive issues. But there are some who, for example, get hit on a Friday night. They get sit on the sidelines and and they have maybe some mild symptoms, but they don't really come out until Monday morning at school. You know, where they have to sit there and look at the smart board or look at the Chromebook and, and have to think, right? They can rest all weekend and seem fine. That's where things get confusing. You know, okay, is this kid actually concussed? Because he seemed fine over the weekend, but, you know, they weren't stimulating the brain necessarily. So when we look at concussion management, um, and these kids get hurt in whatever sporting event they do, then... The, one of the big questions is, do you take them straight from the event or do you wait till Monday on, you know, let's say, let's use footballs because it's, it's a good analogy, but if they get hurt on Friday night, is there a value to taking them to the ER or should you wait to see a specialist like yourself? Or is there certain uh, symptoms that they, that are like, Hey, those must go. You need right. to go. Right. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, that's why it's important to have good athletic trainers on the sidelines at these sports, you know, where the, where the injury risks are so high because that's a trusted source. They know the data, they know what the protocols are and they know how to make the diagnosis, you know, preliminarily, if I'm not there at the time, and they can calm the nerves of, of parents and, and guardians. Um, you know, certainly looking for anything that's uh, more concerning that maybe this doesn't just represent a concussion. You know, maybe there's an actual intracranial bleed or something that is going to actually end up causing a lot more damage and a lot more morbidity and mortality. Um, so looking for the worst headache of my life or, you know, worsening uh, um, uh, just cognition where they're just kind of starting to be a little bit more wacky. Um, you know, any focal neurologic signs. So my left arm is numb. That's not a concussion. So those people need to be able to be evaluated. And that's why having somebody there to kind of counsel the parents or, you know, whomever um, is important. The, your garden variety concussions can wait because the ERs aren't going to do anything um, other than tell you to rest and see your doc on Monday. What is rest? Yeah. Is in my, my uh, youth, my mom was waking me up every hour, making sure I didn't sleep. And now we know that that's not the way to do it. It's probably the worst thing to do. Uh, sleep is restorative. So for goodness sake, let them sleep. But um, yeah, so it's relative rest. That first 24 to 48 hours, and we'll get into this, I think, a lot during this conversation because this is new data. That 24 to 48 hours is important just to kind of let cognitive and physical rest happen, let symptoms decrease. You know, you don't want to do a lot of stimulating um, of the brain. But after that period of time, once those really initial severe symptoms decrease, Rest is pretty much off the table. We want to actually have them doing some physical activity. We want to actually have them do some cognitive things. The, the go into a dark room and sit there for two weeks until the symptoms go away that I was trained to do when I came out, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago, that's totally wrong. And, and every bit of data that's talked about exercise post-concussion in the last two, three years has talked about pushing exercise, sub-threshold. You know, you want to make things worse, but... If those symptoms are not increasing, we want to push cardio exercise because it stimulates the brain to heal faster. Are there different types of concussion? Yeah, there. Well, it, it's probably better to say it as a a head injury can cause different types of clinical syndromes, right? So, concussion we always think okay, headache, foggy, goofy. You know, if you really think about it, it can break it down into uh, several different things. So, a head injury can cause that concussion, but it can also cause 
vestibular dysfunction, which is where Kenzie gets involved. It can cause uh, oculomotor issues where eyes become a problem. It can cause cervical problems with the neck. And all those things can cause a headache. But if you don't identify the cause of the headache, you may be treating the wrong thing. Right. There's a lot of um, focus on things like impact testing, pre, pre-season impact testing, and then there's all the different uh, SAC testing, BEST testing, BESS, I think. Um, so the standardized tests, are they, are they any good? Do they help? Well, let's take that one by one, right? So, so the SCAT-5 is the sport, or sport Concussion Assessment Tool, 5th edition, and, and that comes from all the smartest people in the world getting together and, and developing these things. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the gold standard on diagnosis right now as it stands and that's what our athletic trainers when you see you know a kid getting evaluated on, a, on the sideline on, the, on a friday night that's what they're running through that's that uh, basically what i repeat in the office on monday right is you know looking at concentration focus memory giving us a, a string of words and you have to repeat them back a string of numbers and you repeat them backwards um looking at balance the best test is part of that so balance error scoring system it's where you have a a, an athlete stand on two feet and close their eyes and then you see how they wobble and there's a scoring system for that and then they stand on one foot and they stand you know one foot to the, behind each other um, so those are all yeah I think pretty well validated the problem is is we don't have baselines so we don't know what normal is for a particular kid so you know maybe they just have horrible maybe they're a 350 pound lineman who couldn't stand on one foot to save his life when he didn't have that injury right so so it's it's that's why I'll say again, it's important to have an athletic trainer that knows these kids because if I've just met this kid the first time and he, he looks like a space cadet, I'll lean over to the trainer and say, is he always like this? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's not that smart. So, you know, so it's important to kind of know your, know your uh, clients. Impact is, is a controversial uh, question, which is, I think, why you bring it up. It's a tool. It's not the end-all, be-all. And so a lot of our districts use it, and I think it's, it's appropriate what it does is it's a computerized test that, that basically measures the same things, how they are able to uh, hit the button as fast as they could on, can on the keyboard, how they remember different uh, words that they're shown for you know three quarters of a second, different designs, and they'll flip the designs to be able to, okay, is this one of the designs you saw or is it not? And so they, they have to do that. The nice thing about that is they'll have a baseline preseason. So when Impact has its most uh, utility is preseason, the athletic trainers will run every through every freshman and junior through uh, baseline testing. And then if they have an injury, they're comparing themselves to their previous baseline. They're not comparing it to, you know, Joe Blow, whoever. They're comparing it to well, how they performed before they got hurt. It's not a diagnostic. You know, we don't use that to say, do you have a concussion or do you not have a concussion? We use that to guide return to play. Once their symptoms are gone, we know that sometimes the cognitive part, the thinking part of, of a concussion is still a problem. And, you know, we need to know that the brain is actually recovered enough, and that's what impact catches. It also catches the liars. All athletes lie to get back on the field. So, so if we got a kid that's telling us, I'm good, you know, all my symptoms are back to normal, I feel great, and they can't get through their impact, then we know that maybe something's up. So is impact testing good enough, in your opinion, then, where parents maybe that are not in one of these districts that does it as a standard should search out doctors like yourself or other providers that maybe do it and say, hey, I want to have this baseline in my kid's pocket just in case it ever happens? I wouldn't argue with that as, as a possibility. I mean, the Cardinals use it, the NFL uses it, you know, the IOC, you know, NHL, we all use it. Is it perfect? No. I mean, you can, you can 
I mean, maybe you shouldn't say this, but you can game the test a little bit. You can you can sandbag your baseline and and look worse. Now there are things in place that that we can look at to see that you did that, um, but you know it's not a perfect test. I think you, it's important to communicate that that this is not something that's going to going to really help me if a, if a kid is still having symptoms, right? It doesn't matter to me what they do in their impact test if they still have headaches and, and vision issues. So would it be helpful? Sure. Is it, is it, you know, worth seeking someone out? Probably. I mean, it's inexpensive. It takes about 20 minutes to do. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm real interested in impact testing because I, it, it's interesting to me, especially when you use it without a baseline. Um, there's another system out called uh, clear gauge or clear edge, excuse me, clear edge. And we've had some, ex- Dr. Herford and I've had some experience with that. And we were, we were interested in that because that had a balance component built in. And so that was really nice to have that functional, like you could quantify balance abnormalities on it. Um, but there were a lot of times when we used it where we kind of went, I don't know what we do with this data now that we have it. Like, how do you really like at the end of the day, how are we processing this data? And so that's where I get, sometimes confused because we used it predominantly in patients that didn't have baselines and in more it was just it helped us quantify symptoms and i think that's and what symptom recovery more than predictive or diagnostic yeah you could you could just it created a nice chart that said their headache linearly got better or their balance continued to get better but at the end of the day we're kind of like i don't really know how to process this right or how much validation you could give to that kind of testing I think you're looking for anything that that'll help you, and and that's what we we're talking about earlier. There's there's these gizmos and gadgets that come out that look at a bunch of different things, and and how helpful are they? Well, you know, we all we, we don't have a, a good objective test, so we're always looking. But you know, again, it's it comes down to being able to clinically follow a patient and making sure they're better before they go back. So before we get away from diagnostics, when is it appropriate to scan? And parents inevitably want that scan to right. prove that their kid is healthy, which we know within a concussion may not equal anything near healthy. For sure. No, and, and, and that takes education for sure. And, and, you know, in the acute phase, if you tell a, a parent that, okay, so what I'm going to do, if what you want me to do is irradiate your 15 year old's brain with 150 x-rays, uh, that's what a CT scan does. That make that's pretty easy. When I usually use imaging, it's MRI, and it's with people who have had really prolonged or really severe symptoms. You know, when I walk in uh, to a room and they can't sit up and they can't turn the lights off, they're wearing sunglasses in a dark room, when they are just really blitzed and, and, and we're a week or two or three out and they're not making that progress, then I'll, I'll look. Now, that said, I probably see, I don't know, 500 concussions a year. I maybe do 20 scans. So it's and not of those, awesome. how many of those scans in those severe conditions show you anything that you use to make any treatment decisions? It it mostly shows me things that I refer away from me because I'll find some brain tumors, I'll find some you know multiple sclerosis from time to time. But I'm not, and I couch it for like this. I, I I'm telling them I'm looking for other things that are causing us to not make progress. You know, I'm not going to see this concussion. You know, in, a, in an older individual, so, you know, the elderly population, you'll see some age-related changes, and sometimes you can, you know, make some determination of, okay, did we, did we maybe provoke something that was kind of already sitting there? Right. Yeah, I had heard a guideline once that six weeks was a good number. At six weeks, if a person's still symptomatic, they're, maybe they're making very slow progress, but they're still 
significantly symptomatic in an MRI of a brain is probably not a dumb idea at right. that point. I would I would say that's the case. And and I always that's when I start talking about it. But if they're trending better, I'll still drag my feet a little bit. You know, and and it's resource utilization. I know that that scan's going to be normal. So and when I ordered, I tell them, look, this is going to be normal, but let's check the box and make sure we're not missing something. So before we get to treatment, in, which is where Kinsey is the expert, I want to talk about prevention. Because if we can prevent that, maybe we don't need to treat. But so I guess prevention, the biggest thing is exposure, right? Like, so... That's where the million-dollar fight is. I think a lot of people, well, those of us probably in this room have seen that commercial, um, and I forget the name of the the formal name of Chris Nowitzki's group, the ones where the kids are the kids are smoke the little league football players are smoking. Have you seen this commercial? I vaguely recall this. It was just have you seen last yeah, year. Yeah, been, you haven't seen this commercial? So. Oh, so this commercial is uh, it's a bunch of Pop Warner kids, or maybe eight or nine years old right. they're on full pop warner regalia football regalia giant helmets running down the field. giant helmets yeah. running down the field and they come off and they're on the sidelines and they start smoking cigarettes and it in the commercial is dramatic on, pur- on purpose and it says the, the punchline is um you wouldn't want your small child smoking at a young age but yet playing football increases their risk because if they start at a young age and so it's basically the wait till 14 uh, no, no, no contact, no contact till fourteen, yeah. and so that's that's the punchline of that that whole commercial. And so, somebody that lives in that world, what do you take away from that? Yeah, so there's two answers. There's the data driven answer, which is relatively sparse because it's hard to do um, studies on kids, um, and then there's the personal <laughs> answer because um, I get asked this all the time. Um, you know, avoiding contact. Hockey's done a great job of this. You know, pee wee hockey. They don't do contact until, you know, those kids are basically pubescent, right, until they're, they're you know, 14 like that. Um, I don't disagree with that in football. Um, you know, the, always the, what the coaches will say, we have to teach them how to hit the right way so they don't get hurt when they are hitting. And I think that can still be done when, you know, the time is right to, to teach them. Um, should kids play football is, is kind of what we're getting at. And the data, at least right now, you know, doesn't uh, say no. Um, but we know it's the highest risk. You know, I, I, so I take care of the Ford Zumwalt School District. I'm in charge of their concussion program. Um, and every year for the last 12 years, more than a third of the concussions come from football. But that means about two-thirds of them come from other sports. So are we going to not have kids play soccer? Because that's the second most common. Or basketball, where they come from, too. Swimming, I'll get a few every year from bad flip turns. Track, I mean, it, so the point is it can happen anywhere right it can happen on the playground it can happen uh, on the field certainly your risk is higher with football um but you know is, is it a point where I'm, I'm ready to say no kid should play football no, probably not there's plenty of kids that so that, would you say is there's an age when they should have more contact in football or when they should start heading the ball in soccer right so yeah heading heading as is again more of a puberty type of thing where where they have enough neck strength that the uh, the ball's not heading them; they're heading the ball, right? Um, they need to come at the ball as opposed to just being smoked by the ball. Um, so yeah, that when you can develop that muscle strength, that's important. Same kind of thing with with you know football; you need to be able to know how to tackle and to teach a nine year old or an eight year old. You have to have your head up every time. You know, maybe that that's a developmental thing that they're not able to really um, you know develop as they as they as they practice. I, I would absolutely agree with that that 
contact in a young brain is probably not a good thing. Are there some equipment challenges or equipment um, innovations? Innovations yeah. that so the magic help in, right? Yeah, help in football. The magic or, helmet, or right. that you know, very popular for a long time and now not anymore. The the headbands for right. female soccer players. Right. So um, we'll take helmets first. There um, was I always would tell people there's a very famous study uh, out of Virginia Tech um, that was uh, done in, I guess, the early 2010s that talked about that took each helmet company and, and rated it based on the, uh, the ability to take a, take a hit. It's called the star study. And they basically put a helmet on uh, a machine and then smacked the helmet with, a, with another machine. And they measured what the force was. Um, and they gave a five-star down to a one-star rating on these helmets. The problem was is that hit doesn't happen on the football field. No one gets hit straight on, head-to-head, perfectly without any sort of rotation. It's the rotation that's the problem. And unless you um, have some sort of magic helmet that will limit neck motion, you're not going to prevent a concussion. It's that shearing force that happens when the brain gets hit, not only on the, on the x-axis, but the y-axis that twists that causes the shearing force of the axons that causes the concussion. So no, there's no magic helmet. Now, some are definitely better than others. But what I always tell my athletes is, look, if you're using a helmet that's got an air bladder, and I can come down the sideline and grab your face mask and move it because there's not enough air in it, then you're playing a very dangerous game without a helmet on. Some of these new ones, the Zenith and, and the you know million-dollar helmets, they seem to be a little bit more protective, but no helmet is going to prevent a concussion. Oh, let's talk about the, uh, the uh, headband, too, because that's important. Um, the National Federation of High School Athletics Associations, I always have to think about that acronym, uh, actually recommends against using them. Um, because while they may marginally decrease risk, it changes the style of play. So these athletes are wearing this headband that makes them bulletproof, and so they're, they play more aggressively. Same thing happened in, in the NHL when they put helmets on. Head injuries actually increased because they would use their head to hit other people, right? So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. So um, if someone asks me, I say, look, you know, if you want to wear it, that's fine, but just make sure you're not thinking that you're bulletproof out there. What age did you? Um, I I remember back in in the years of my training, we did early math studies and concussions in in kids who played soccer, and there was definitely an early indication that math scores diminished based on the number of head balls those mm-hmm. children took. And these were ten through fourteen um, year old kids yeah and that data actually goes into adults there was a great study in scandinavian football players so what we would call soccer players um and toward the end of the season their cognitive scores would go down on these tests did they recover they do so that's a thing right so you know if you test them baseline the next season the scores are back up so again i think it's a matter of picking the right population with enough strength to be able to do what you're asking them to do on the field um, to not put them at risk, and that, that comes down to strength. Do females have worse head injuries with concussions than males? The answer is maybe. <laughs> so um, every four years, though, the, all these really you know smart neurologists and sports medicine docs will uh, get together in some you know, fancy place. They went to Berlin in 2016 and Zurich the four years before that. And in the, in the Zurich conference, they said, yes, women have a higher risk, and in the Berlin conference in 2016, they said, eh, maybe not. Um, so 
I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, that it's it's uh, it's may come down to kind of a muscular strength issue, but I don't think we can really have the data to tell. Got it. Are those studies being done? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. I look at the equipment, and that's an interesting question. That's where I struggle. I'll, this is more of an editorial, but you should play football without a helmet. <laughs> well, explains a lot. Full disclosure: <clears throat> I'm from Texas. Texas is a football state. It is what you do. If you were a male in school, you play football. And or so, female. But in the state of Texas, it's a, it's a rite right. of passage in the boy world. In, in Texas, it's what we do. Okay. And we have 60,000-seat high school stadiums in Texas. Be careful, cowboy. <laughs> Hear me out. So it's funny because uh, my son was involved in one of the um, – um, junior football leagues here in the area and they asked me to kind of sit on their board for 15 minutes as the only medical provider in the, in the group and, and I said sure and I went to the USA football concussions training you know and those things and then uh, it was only he was only old enough for tack or uh, for flag at that time then when tackle came everybody just assumed he was going to play tackle and I, I have a son who's very big for his age. And uh, so they were like, well, of course he's playing. And I said, no, I don't think I'm going to let him play because it was second grade. It was going into second grade. Mm-hmm. And I go, I'm not going to let him play. And, and everybody looked at me like, well, you're from Texas. Of course he's going to play. And I yeah. said, no, I'm going to kind of ride this data out a little bit. I'm a little nervous about the data. What I take away from the data is the more hits that you take, the higher your risk and the higher the complication rate. So I said, hmm, maybe we'll just wait a little bit until we put him in that environment. And one of the things that I also was interested in was in Texas, the and, and I'm sure this is in other places too, but I can only speak to Texas. In Texas, they spend a lot of money on equipment. They replace equipment every two years. I mean, and it was nothing for our high school to get brand new Douglas shoulder pads when Douglas was the biggest thing. And then brand new Rydell helmets or Zenith helmets. I mean, whatever was hot and new, they had the money, they had the budget. And I've taken care of a couple of high schools in this area and their budgets aren't the same. And I've looked at, I've been here some around some of the high schools and I'm like, man, our equipment in high school was better than a lot of junior colleges. And I worry about that when it comes to my kid, because now I'm like, well, one, now we're playing a dangerous sport, but some of these programs don't have the money to have the best equipment. And I can remember taking care of one of the local high schools and kids were bringing their own helmets that they were purchasing themselves. And in Texas, that would have been completely unheard of because the school district would have said, we are never going to be a part of this. So you're saying that the equipment was the protection or potential protection? Well, I just think it stacked the deck in, in the kids' favor a little bit. Right. Well, the problem, too, in, in, in this area where if there's a new helmet to be bought, it's going get to get to the varsity. And then the varsity helmets will be handed down, and so your freshmen who are probably the most, you know, less de- least developed from a from a strength standpoint are the ones that have the crappier helmets. So, right. You know. So that worries me a little bit as right. a parent. Right. Now I know science to back that up, but there is a point in it where I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, some kids are using air bladdered helmets, and some kids have hard foam, and you know, there's some that are better. There and is a. Um, I don't remember the name of the organization, but it's 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 a regulation. You know, they they test Noxy all these. Or, yeah, that's yeah. it, Noxy, Yeah, uh, they test the helmets. Uh, you know, when they get them, and then there's a you know a life lifespan of them. So, 
theoretically, if your district's doing a good job, they should be keeping an eye on how long those helmets are. Are there district regulations for helmets? I don't know that here. I don't think so. I mean, I think... Uh, Have you yeah. seen the number of concussions increasing? Yes, but I'll qualify that because I think when I started, um, there was not as much recognition. So it's a sensitivity yeah, to the diagnosis right. more than an increase, actual and increase in number. A willingness to report, right? So before, and when you know when we played football when we were kids, yeah, I mean, I probably had a few concussions, and I was like, I'm not telling my coach. I mean, I don't want to be pulled out, right? Uh, now, you know, sometimes I have kids coming up. I have a concussion. It's like I don't actually think you do. <laughs> you know, get back in there, calm down. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're willing to report, and more importantly, their teammates are willing to report on their on their teammate. How have you seen? Uh, or have you seen the the environment from the coaches change? Um, you know, the, the the typical stereotypical story is the coaches like, you're fine, go back. Have you seen that change? 100% yes. I will tell you without a doubt I have more trouble with parents than I do coaches. I Absolutely can, agree, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Coaches, they understand, they, well, and they've seen it more, right? So, you know, we'll we'll have a – coach come in and check on athlete and they'll give us the look and we'll say no and he walks away and moves on um i see and fo- especially in football they're pretty they're pretty sophisticated when it comes because they see it so much now some of my cheerleading coaches which is a high risk sport as well maybe don't see it as often and seem to sometimes be more difficult to work with it's actually kind of an underground dangerous sport i, I don't know what the right term was but there's a lot of injuries in cheerleading, but oh, because they're not in some places, quote, varsity sports, like in college, it was a big deal. And they've only recently started pulling them under the kind of the NCAA banner for a long time. Your cheerleaders were not considered, quote, NCAA athletes. And now they're pulling them in. But there's a lot of injuries in cheerleading. It's the highest risk of catastrophic injury in all female sports. So, you know, you're throwing people, and especially in the high school and the younger high school athletes, You'll have these club cheerleaders who are really good at what they do because they spend all year doing it. And then you'll have some that, oh, I think I'll try out for cheerleading this year. And then the coaches try to do as much as they can and stack as high as they can. And maybe some of these people aren't, aren't really, don't have the skill for it. And that not only do they put themselves at risk, but they put the people beneath them at risk as they fall down and smack them with a knee or an elbow. So I guess from a diagnostic perspective, one of the things you mentioned is athletic trainers. And um, that's another thing that's different for me here. In Texas, uh, the law is that you, the actual school districts, uh, all the schools actually employ their own athletic trainers. Now, that's not the case in Missouri, but I think most of the big school districts employ athletic trainers. They have contracts with them, right? Yeah, so they don't necessarily employ them. Some of them do, but a lot of them are, are they have contracts with some of the physical therapy groups that provide athletic trainers. We need, we're going to bring an athletic trainer in because I'm a former athletic trainer, and I think it, I think it's interesting that people don't, some people don't even really know what an athletic trainer is or what the difference between a physical therapist and an athletic trainer is, but they're uniquely qualified for that type of an injury. Oh, absolutely. So once you've made the diagnosis, let's talk about treatment. So the, the treatment initially we've alluded to is no longer the dark room, but what is the basic treatment plan? Like what is your, your kind of, um, go to 
algorithm for treating a concussion. Right. So your garden variety concussion, it's really just support. So, you know, having them when they do go back to school, I try to not have them out of school. In fact, it, it usually is a negative to have them out of that environment. At a minimum, I want them there a half day, um, but I'm usually able to keep them there full days by instituting a, a rest break schedule. So most most you know these classes will be an hour long, for example. At a half an hour, I have them get up and leave, right, where they're actually going to the nurse's office or sitting in the hallway, somewhere where they can just shut down. And I use the analogy of, of kind of your gas tank, right? So before you got hurt, you can get up, shower, go to school, go to practice, come home, do your homework, uh, and go to bed, and you still have a half tank of gas. You go to sleep, and it's a full tank of gas in the morning. Well, with a concussion injury, you are literally burning that gas, that fuel, right, that glucose in your brain just to get up out of bed and get to school. And so if you can stop off at the, at the gas station and fill up just with taking that five-minute break out in the hallway where there's no work, there's no screen, you don't take your phone with you, you don't take work with you, you just shut it down, get out of the, of the educational environment, you generally make it through the day a little bit easier. We always give them more time to, have, uh, to finish assignments. You know, what, what kids will notice is they're reading three and four times the same material to get it to go in. And then I usually try to, to if not defer tests, have them do more, no more than one a day. Because if they get through a day of school and have to go home and study for six hours for three tests the next day, it's going to light them up. So that's kind of where we start. And then especially with an athlete that has an athletic trainer at their school, we'll institute a um, a stationary bike program that's uh, for for cardiovascular uh, starting at 15 minutes and just trying not and trying to build up to 30, 30 minutes um, as long as their symptoms aren't substantially increasing. Um, That seems to really cut days and even weeks off of some of these um, symptoms. So the, the break with school, do you, you find that the school's very accommodating in that? Um, yes. Uh, they didn't used to be, but I think it's so common now that, that these teachers know, you know, um, okay, this one's got a concussion. This is what I'm going to have to do. And, and uh, they're pretty, pretty sophisticated with it. You'll get a rogue teacher every once in a while. And, and that's the problem. I mean, these kids look normal, right? You know, once they're a week or two out, they're not wearing sunglasses all the time. They don't have a bandage on their head. They look normal. So, so you know, explaining to a teacher sometimes uh, or to a, to a student, you know, when you need to take these breaks, I, even if you don't want to, do it because that's how you're going to get better faster. Um, and if someone's giving you trouble, say, look, it's not me. It's my doctor. He's crazy. He wants me to take all these breaks. And I, I always tell him, hey, if your teacher has a problem, have him give me a call. I haven't got a single phone call. So, I mean, they, they tend, to, tend to fall in the line. So... What is the, what's the timeline look like? So we're at, you're at maybe say, you said that some of these breaks cut weeks off. They used to be, um, and I don't know, Misha guidelines still are, there used to be some time built in there. Is there still a timeline that's built in or is the timeline gone and it's all just about symptoms now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all individualized now. Um, you know, you don't, basically the time that Misha gives us is you can't return an athlete to play in, in 24 hours. Well, I mean, no one's doing that anyway. Um, but, you know, the average 80% of them are done by three to four weeks. Um, you know, it's the, one that, the ones that go longer that I spend most of my day with. Um, and those are people who usually, you know, need Kinsey to, to help them get better. So, breaks... Some mild cognitive rest. Right. Now, you you alluded to screen time. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. It's a great one. So where does screen time fit in? Um, it has to fit in. Um, and, and this is new data, too, where 
three or four years ago, we would rip the screens out of their hands and, and um, you know, not allow them to look at anything, thinking, of course, that's too much stimulus to the brain um, and it's going to worsen symptoms. Um, but realize two things. One, people in the generation younger than us are wired differently than we are. They, their brains are used to having that screen in front of them. Um, sometimes, you know, in my daughter's case, a lot more than I would prefer. But also, to get them back to school, it's all screen-based anyway. They're on Chromebooks, they're on iPads, they're on smart boards. So if, if I go dark on those guys and they, they can't look at their screens, and I say, okay, you're going to go to school and go nuts, uh, they're, they're going to they're gonna crash and burn. So again, it's that short burst of activity. You can look at the screen, but you need to take breaks. You know, I don't want four-hour YouTube marathons you know, or TikTok or whatever. I want you to, you know, look at it, take a break, and then, and then do it again. Do you, do you buy into any of the data or do you, what are you, what are your feeling about the data that talks about like depression? And I, I read that a lot of times the screen time, since these kids are wired different, that screen time is their social outlet. It's their connection to their friends. No kids don't, kids don't sit in the hall closet with the corded phone any longer. They're texting or TikToking or whatever. You just lost. No one knows what you're talking about. Yeah. That's underage. There was a time when here. phones had cords. <laughs> I'm old enough, just old enough to know that. But I thought those were the flip phones. No, they came after that. <laughs> so there was a phone, you know, there was a phone before the one with buttons. I'm the oldest one in this room, <laughs> so I think I know. Yeah, you used the operator. She connected you. <laughs> that's but, right. So, I live in Mayberry. That's right. So I... I read that there's a lot of interesting data coming out that the depression factor, and then if you take these screen times and you isolate these kids, that hurts them because it hurts them emotionally. Right. And this is, this is huge, right? So when I have a, a patient come in, every time they come in, they fill out a symptom inventory. The bottom six uh, questions are depression. Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling anxious? Are you flying off the handle easily? That kind of stuff. Uh, because two things. Yes, of course. There's going to be depression because you're not doing your sport. You're not feeling good. You're going to, you're going to just feel bad about things. But two, what controls your mood? Your brain does, and you've injured your brain. So the things that would normally not stress you out now will send you off uh, quite easily. There's also a fair bit of new research into autonomic nervous system dysfunction and, you know, that kind of fight-or-flight mechanism constantly being activated because, you know, from when we were cavemen thinking that there's, there's a saber toothed tiger outside that part of the brain's constantly going. And so that can cause a lot of anxiety symptoms. Of course you take those kids out of their social, social support networks, you know, mom and dad are great, but you know, that's not, that's not reality. Um, they don't do well, which is half the reason they need to go to school. They need the stimulus from a, from a cognitive standpoint, but they also need that social uh, interaction because if they withdraw, especially if they have symptoms for a long time and they're out of school for two or three weeks, that's a huge problem because uh, they do. They get really, in, really, really down. And then once that stuff happens, I mean, depression can cause all the same symptoms as a concussion can. And then what are you fighting? I, I need to treat the depression before I can even get the concussion better at all. So it really is a huge hurdle for us if a kid drops into that. And I think that's kind of where Kinsey comes in because I, I feel like this is a new, a new thing physical therapist taking on vestibular dysfunction and working with patients for concussion. So what is it, Kinsey? Like what is vestibular dysfunction therapy look like? So a lot of times when I see them in the clinic, it's if they, 
it's been four weeks, it's been six weeks, and they're still having underlying underlying dizziness or eye tracking problems, or if they go to school and they're having trouble concentrating or they're having headaches, um, just the chronic type of stuff. So the first visit, when they come in, a lot of it is just education. Just I sp- I'll spend an hour educating the student educating the pa- the parents um more so kind of like what they were saying the not to like withdraw like you're able to still do everything that you're that you want to do that you're used to doing it's just you're gonna have to modify it a little bit for a little while um also I think a big part of it is for the parent education side of it to not be so focused on the the symptoms so every night when they get home from school it's not do you have a headache do you have a headache you know do you have a headache after you did this because then all the kid is doing is thinking about if they have a headache and they're so hyper-focused on the headache that that's all they're thinking about and they have this little headache and they're like, yeah, I have a headache, I can't do that and then they withdraw more. So it's just uh, more education on what's the normal process of the concussion and the recovery. And then you get into the the vestibular stuff, the testing of the eye tracking, whether they can follow objects, whether they can, the memory stuff, a lot of the stuff that Dr. Larkin was saying that he does baseline testing on. You're getting a baseline and then you're, you're just practicing it. You're finding ways to retrain the brain to get it used to being able to do those things again. Kinsey, explain vestibular to the listeners. Yeah, so that's the component of you have three senses. So you have like your vision and then you have your vestibular, which is like your inner ear and the canals that go with that. And then you have um, the, the touch, like your balance, your foot, the floor. Um, and when the vestibular system isn't working right, you have a lot of the dizziness, the, when you turn your head really quickly up, down, side to side, you'll get the dizziness or the the eye fatigue. A lot of times when they're at school and the concentration, that's the, they're just like, it's, I don't have a headache. I'm just tired. Like my eyes are tired because your eyes are like, it's a muscle. So if you're not used to using those or they're injured, it's just like your leg when you're running, it's sore, it's tired. Same with your eyes, same with your brain. So you can train those specific muscles the inner ear you can re program yeah readapt re reprogram yeah so you're finding say they come in and they said i can't look side to side without getting really dizzy then you find different ways to slowly integrate them you say zero to ten right now if you move your head from side to side what are you are three are you a four are you a five and then you you find that range of finding different exercises. So a lot of times we'll get like an index card out or, or a business card where they have writing on it that they can focus on. And they'll look at it and they'll just look at the card and look, move their head side to side. And then it's, does that make you dizzy? If that make you a little bit dizzy or a lot dizzy? So you want it to be a little bit dizzy because then your brain is adapting to it. So it's getting used to that movement again. If it makes it too dizzy, you want it pretty subs. You don't want to make the symptoms too bad, but you kind of want to find that zone of retraining and same with like sports if they're an athlete so if they're a catcher in baseball you'll want to incorporate as soon as you can like the squatting position of a catcher and you'll you can write numbers on a ball or something and you'll kind of toss it to them as they're squatting and they can read the numbers so you can kind of focus it on what they like to do because then they'll buy into it a little bit more as well any other adaptive aids that you use in concussion treatment a lot of it's pretty easy stuff to make. Honestly, there's not a lot of machines that you need. Um, if 
there's a lot of cool things that you can have. So you can have the bo- the light up boards for reflexes where they can, it lights up at certain places and you tap it. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of things I use are like I was saying, like a baseball with numbers on it or index cards or business cards or foam pads. Um, a lot of it is, or cards with writing on it. So a lot of it is just things that you can make or simple things, which make it easier too, because they can practice a lot of it at home as well. When do you make that referral to a neuro-ophthalmologist or a neuro-optometrist? Yeah, I think I always give the vestibular therapist a chance first because they're going to do a little bit of that parallel um, you know, evaluation and management. The, the eyes are part of the vestibular kind of system, right? So they're, they're obviously involved. So a lot of times they can, they can fix a lot of that stuff. It's when they come back and they're either worse or they're just not making the progress, you know, in their routine follow-up visit um, that I'll usually do it. That's kind of where I've been saved a lot of times. And especially recently, um, you know, getting a good, I use a neuro optometrist quite a bit. Um, and they'll, uh, put them in prism lenses where the, the prisms will actually kind of train the eyes to kind of push back. So you'll see tracking issues where one eye will track your, your target pretty well, but the other eye is lagging. And so they can kind of push it to, to make it, uh, basically exercise all the time. It's amazing. Sometimes I'll, I'll have, I had a patient come in, um, in her 50s and she got hurt at work and, and she would constantly just look at me with her head just slightly tilted to the left and every time I test her I was like hey put your head up straight and she said when I do that I get really dizzy and I get a bad headache and so they took her in they put prisms on her in their office and she said it was the best she had felt in in six months and so so getting her into those glasses really really saved uh, her you know because before 10 years ago when those people came in and we didn't really know much about this I would have just patted her on the head and say well I guess you're going to be crooked because there's, there's, we're done. Right. So yeah, it's, it's important to get everything taken care of, not just, you know, medicines for headaches or, or vestibular therapy. Now our prism, those prism lenses, are they forever? No. Um, well, mostly not. I mean, sometimes people end up kind of being stuck to them. Uh, but generally they're, they are temporary and, and they'll reassess and, and start some vision therapy actually at their office a lot of times. And so Kinsley will be working in parallel with a, with a vision therapist sometimes. Um, and, you know, eventually they can limit, you know, start with a big prism, the prism that really pushes and then they'll shorten it and, and then eventually can get rid of it. We've generalized this a lot, but how often are you seeing concussion patients early on Kinsey and then how long do you typically treat them? Usually four to six weeks at first, and then they'll usually go see Dr. Lycran and another physician, and then they'll kind of assess their progress and decide if they want to do a neurooptometrist or if they want to do both. Or, But I would say average six to eight weeks, two times a week usually. Okay. And that therapy starts around week four? I pull the trigger a little earlier, I, honestly. I mean, I, I don't know if that's based on data or just on my impatience. Um, you know, I want to, I want to, I don't think there's anything that tells me I shouldn't push a kid or push a, push an injured concussion patient to do this stuff. It's only, I don't think it's going to hurt anything for sure. Um, as long as they're not pushing too hard, you know, it's usually not the therapist that pushes too hard. It's usually, well, if you told me to do this 10 times, I'm going to do it 40 times and they end up just blowing themselves out of the water. So Dr. Larkin, are you letting them return to sport during their treatment? So while they're under the care of somebody like Kenzie, they're still out of play. Right. Because it's really difficult to tease out, you know, how, if the brain is healed, if they're still having vision issues or or vestibular issues or mood-based issues too. Um, 
you really, and a lot of this, I, I lean on the districts and the district policy is, you know, they can't be better until they're asymptomatic or they can't play until they're asymptomatic. So I can use that as my excuse, but I have very rarely, you know, I had a kid that I can just remember off the top of my head that had a preexisting eye thing that got worse and I'd let her go back before she was fully back to her baseline. But, you know, it's pretty rare that that happens. You mentioned mood, which is an interesting symptom with concussions because there's such a wide variety of complaints that can be somatic versus truly absolutely injury related. How do you tease those out? Um, uh, talking to their athletic trainers, talking to their parents. You know, is this typical? You know, I have a I have a 15 year old cheerleader coming in. Is she always like this? Is she always grumpy? Um, and you know, mom will give me the, the nonverbal, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, she is. Um, but you can you can almost tell, right? So I'll have a, a kid that comes in, they look like they feel like garbage, and then I'll see them back a few weeks later, and you can just see, oh, yeah, the, the, the fog is lifted. They're just brighter. Um, it's, a, it's difficult. I oftentimes will get a, a counselor involved or a psychologist involved, um, you know, if I, if I need help. I don't, I don't like to put um, people on antidepressants if I don't have to. But sometimes it just it just has to has to happen because they're not going to get better if we don't get that mood based stuff under control. Where does sleep fall into the concussion treatment? It is vitally important. Uh, if you don't sleep, you're not going to improve. Right? That's how you fill up your tank. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll most of the time try to just and and this is a problem in our high school athletes. You know, make sure that their sleep hygiene is good, meaning that screens are put down, TVs are out of the room. Um, you know, we're, we got a cool temperature with, with, uh, you know, maybe soft white noise, but nothing that's going to, um, shine or, or anything like that. Um, you can fix that most, most time you can fix the problems. I'll occasionally use some melatonin sleep aids like that. And, and in a real nasty case, we'll, we'll use some of the heavier hitters for, for getting people sleep, but if they're not sleeping, they're not going to get better. It also helps with that autonomic nervous system dysfunction. It helps the, the fight or flight system calm down. And if, if people are sleeping two or three hours, I mean, we've all done it where we've had to pull an all-nighter or something and you feel like garbage for a few days. So, you know, uh, imagine being injured and not sleeping. That's even going to make it worse. Do you make a big <clears throat> distinction between the use of pharmacologic agents in the uh, young athlete versus an older? Absolutely. Make it. Yeah, you, you, you have to. I drag my feet. I mean, I really do. It, and, and if it's necessary, look, it's necessary. Um, and it, a lot of it depends on what the symptom protocol or the symptom uh, profile is. If it's, you know, a migraine type headache, you know, there is relatively good data that, that we can use some of these things to help um, get headaches under control. Because if you're constantly in pain, you're not going to, you're not going to sleep well. You're not going to think well. You're not going to feel well. So sometimes it has to be done, but I'm, I'm absolutely more likely to pull the trigger faster in an older person. Are you using... Are you using like migraine type medicines or are you using typical pain medications? So generally, I don't even discuss migraine type type uh, um, medications until like the four to six week mark, right? So most of them are, we're not going to broach that topic. Um, I'll usually recommend Tylenol. Ibuprofen changes the blood flow to the brain just a little bit and can cause rebound headaches if people are overusing it. So I try to have them stay away from that. You know, if there is a bleed that, that we're not seeing, you know, and they're on a blood thinner like an anti-inflammatory ibuprofen, that obviously can cause some issues. But my, my preference is to have them not take anything because I don't want them to cover up their symptoms and then go do more than they should be. <clears throat> but, yeah, in, in the migraine arena, one, you have to make sure the migraine's coming from the, 
from the or the headaches coming from a migraine type, not from vestibular, not from the neck. You know, because if you're throwing meds at something and you're treating the wrong thing, you're going to start dealing with side effects too. So sure. So you mentioned um, a work-related type older patient that uh, this is something I think we're seeing a lot more in the world is uh, work-related or occupational concussions. Sure. Probably because we're a lot more aware of it now than anything. Are there any special differences or um, anything you do different when you're managing, say, um, an occupational or even just an older patient versus a your garden variety sports concussion? Right. So a couple questions there. There's there's a bimodal distribution. So there's two people, two populations that are more complicated. And those are young, young kids, so pre, pre-puberty kids, because their brains are still developing. Those are usually going to be longer lasting symptoms and, and harder to get better. But then older, you know, more elderly folks too, because they're kind of on the, on the downhill slide. And so their brains are going to be more affected by the injury. Um, so certainly you I have a little quicker trigger on getting supportive things going for those two populations. But, you know, especially in the elderly people, they're going to go mood a lot. They're going to get depressed quickly. Um, they just it's, it's, it's one of the things I see the most. So I, I pull the trigger on counseling, psychology, that kind of stuff um, a little faster. Um, a lot of times, actually, I use Kenzie for that. <laughs> she does a lot of that for me, um, you know, because she spends so much time with them. You know, she's able to kind of walk them through and, and say, hey, this is normal. It's not, not unexpected, you know, uh, to tell, tell them that yeah, they're going to be fine. They're going to get better. When do you use neurocognitive testing for, you know, brain prediction? And I, I would love to use it more than I do. It's just not super readily available and it's really expensive. So, you know, a good neuro neuropsychologist is, is gold because, you know, at a minimum it'll tell me, you know, where is this person's problem? How can I support them at work, at school, you know, through life is, or is this more of a, of a psych issue where they're just horribly depressed and that's why they don't feel good. And, and, um, I, I send them to a psychiatrist? Um, problem is getting in with those folks. There's just, there's not a lot of them out there. It's they, you know, they take three or four hours per patient to do that evaluation and, you know, I'll send them and they don't, they don't get an appointment for six weeks. Um, so, you know, I, I, I generally, if someone is not making progress by about that six to eight week mark, I'm going to try to get that going. Insurance too, doesn't do a great job. So right. a lot of it's out of pocket and it's not cheap. What about Botox? <clears throat> yeah, it's great. Headaches. It's great. And, and certain now you're looking at um, two things. You're looking at the migraine type that Botox can treat, but also some of the neurogenic type. Um, you know, we haven't even broached on broached this yet, but a lot of the headaches actually are generated from the suboccipital nerves, which are behind, you know, where the neck meets the scalp. Um, you know, you imagine you're in a car accident, you have some whiplash that can tension those nerves, not the nerves you know, coming off the spinal cord, but the nerves that are superficial in the skin there. And they can cause a headache that'll radiate from the, the back of the head up and over, sometimes to the eyes, sometimes to the front of the head. So doing Botox or steroid injections back there to get those nerves cooled down, a lot of times will will be magic. Um, some of the migraine literature talks about Botox injections too. Again, it's finding people to do it. There just there isn't a lot out there, um, and it's a it's a big step. You know, if if I'm if I'm spinning my wheels and I'm not getting people better, then that's when we'll pull the trigger. Well, the good news is, doctor, if you need someone to do an occipital <laughs> nerve injection, <laughs> what this, do you know? This lovely lady right to my left. <laughs> that is honestly one of the most rewarding injections to do when people have such severe headaches and they can just get basically get off the table. And they, you know, I, I 
I can recall several patients. It's almost they're almost in tears oh, totally. when they're so happy. Yeah, they they uh, they call you an angel. Like, I walked in there, I had eight out of ten pain, and then I walked out and I had no pain and, yeah, and felt like good like good for eight weeks. Yeah, it's pretty rewarding. So, activate vestibular therapy probably around week four, or or sooner. I'll say two to three, but two to three. Yeah. Okay. And then Kinsey, you say that therapy takes uh, roughly six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks, yeah. And then sometimes if you address the vestibular problems and the concussion problems, there's still the underlying like suboccipital nerve problems. So if we see them for four to six weeks and they're still having symptoms, it might be, I think we've done the vestibular stuff. Now it's Are up to somebody Are you incorporating else. like cervical treatment yeah, and so traction we'll do, and manual therapy? We'll do like manual therapy for like the musculoskeletal part, the postural part. Um, a lot of it, I don't know if all therapists do this, but a lot I focus a lot on the cervical stability too. So you'll get like a head laser and then you'll do little little circles on the wall because if you if you retrain the brain and do all these vestibular things they're still probably gonna have problems if they have underlying postural issues and a lot of high school kids will have underlying postural issues so that's a big part of it too i'd say it's an important point to make too that that not everyone does what kinsey does so to find a good vestibular therapist a good manually trained therapist who does this and understands it it's not just going to be you know going to joe blow physical therapy you got to find the people who know what they're doing that's an excellent point yeah is it a special certification um or just specialized training specialized training yeah um so i cora does their own specialized training that they'll send all of their therapists to and they do it once or twice a year and then i've done a couple of trainings at mizzou as well um so there's just trainings different trainings you can go to there is a vestibular certification i believe um but i'm not sure if there's a concussion specific specialization can you get ptsd from a concussion not from the injury, but from the concussion. I've never specifically made that diagnosis, but it's more for my lack of training. It's, it's just, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'll, I'll get psychiatry involved a lot of times with that if, if, I'm, if I'm seeing those things. Um, yeah, I mean, theoretically, I guess you could, but, you know, I, I don't know that it's a – I see it more – like, for example, my, my injured nurses, right, that uh, work on a psychiatry floor and they'll be assaulted by a patient that they end up with some PTSD. But again, that's not from the concussion or that's, that's from the actual trauma. Right. Right. So I think we covered the really basic stuff we wanted to cover, Dr. Herford. Do you think, Jeff? (laughs) I feel good about what we've done here today because I think we've given good guidance on people don't have to stop playing football. But maybe a little bit older is a little bit better. There's you need a better booster club in high school mm-hmm. so the freshmen get. Oh, this is perfect. Just <laughs> another person asking me for money for sports. Let's go. Before we finish with the concussion treatment, recovery. So my kid has a concussion. Dr. Larkin, will they recover? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I was kind of have my, my statement that I'll make in, in every. Almost every person that walks in, I said, like I said, I'll see 500 concussions a year. You, you don't make me nervous. Nothing that you are telling me is something I haven't heard a thousand times before. So you're scared. You're as a parent. You're doing your job by being scared. This is spooky. This is the first time this has happened, but you're my fourth one today. So this is a common thing. You are acting just like you should. You're going to get better, right? And the vast majority of times, I'm not lying. You know, they there are some that that don't get better, but there are other things that are going on in those cases, you know, whether it's a vestibular issue, a, a, a visual issue, something like that. So the question that comes off of that is when's enough enough? Is there too many? Is there a point? 
in which a person has had X number of concussions, uh, or is there a number that you go, look, this is just not for you. So or a, when do you do so much treatment and they're still not getting better and you say, this is it? Yeah, and that's probably the, the better way to catch that, that question because the answer in, in you may be one, the answer in me may be ten. Right. Um, if a first concussion takes me six months to get them better and they haven't gone to school for three of those months because they can't stand to be in there because of the movement of the of the students in the hallway or the fluorescent lights, then, yeah, that's enough. You're done. Right. And we're going to have that very painful conversation that maybe contact collision sports aren't for you. But I have just as many people, probably more people that come in and say, oh, that's my sixth. And it took me two weeks to get better and I'm doing fine. Um, at least as it stands right now, I don't have data to say that that person shouldn't return to contact collision sports. I do it with a little bit of anxiety. And, and I think it's, I always say you should have a conversation because my guess is you're not going to be an NFL linebacker, but you're going to want to go to college and cure cancer. And that's what I need you for. Right. So, you know, is this sport worth the next one, which is going to be easier to get? It's going to be more, uh, likely to be more severe. And that's a conversation that, that I can just present data for, and they need to have that that conversation as a family. I always offer to to be the bad guy and retire someone if if they're not uh, if they're not sure about going back. The other thing I tell you tell them too is if it is so easy to get a concussion that every season, every time you take a hard tackle, you're out for three weeks. It's probably not the sport for you. It's not fun. That makes sense. I thought there used to be guidelines in the NCAA with. Multiple concussions in one season. In season, right. 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 Isn't it three? That's still there. Or yeah. two? It's two. Two. Yeah. That you're done for the season if you have two right. concussions in right. the same season. So, But that that recommendation hasn't carried over into the high school ranks? Or? Uh, I don't think explicitly it's it's listed necessarily, but you know, I think anybody's going to tell you that's the way, that's what I would tell people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but not, not for good, but for the season. Right. 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 Long-term... Yeah outcome data on concussions it's a hot hot uh, topic you know for sure the the boston brain study was talking about uh, cte or chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy with all these nfl players and some hockey players some college players that's where you know i get a lot of questions and and was this is this something that my son's gonna or daughter's gonna have and the answer is we don't really know i mean obviously the exposure to the to the injury is is higher in someone who's been doing it their entire life so, you know, you do stand risk to have that, but there have been millions of people who have played football and played football for a long time in high school, college, and even into the professional ranks, and they don't have it. So it, it's, it's important to, I think, kind of couch that conversation with, yeah, there's certainly a risk. You know, cumulative concussions are probably going to cause long-term issues, but, you know, so will several other injuries. So I, I, there's no magic number. I, I wish I could say, again. Right. Had, you've had four, you're done, but which isn't. Do you, and this is more of a personal question, I guess I would ask you, where do you feel? when you He read, doesn't do that yeah. kind of medicine, Jeff. Wow. <laughs> when we you step look outside? At, <laughs> when you, could you guys clear the room? <laughs> I've got a rash. Um, when you look at that CTE data, there's a, in the, specifically the Boston Brain Study where, you know, they're, they're getting donated um, brains of athletes. There's a lot of people that feel that that that's kind of self-selected because those it's are really skewed. Very, it's yeah. very skewed. Absolutely. And so there's some people that do what you do and live in the concussion world every day that say I'm not so sure that data is quite as 
ominous as it looks because it's it maybe not isn't a full picture right well and you remember the new york times article that came out and the big headline was 99 out of 100 brains in this study have cte well yeah because those people were having those symptoms and and donated their brains so you know you've you've skewed the denominator so absolutely there's a bias there and but it doesn't mean it's not worth looking at for sure i mean you know this this is a, a significant problem and and you know, something that finally the NFL has started to take a little bit more seriously and supporting those people after they retire who are having symptoms of, you know, maybe not just CTE, but just, you know, long-term cognitive issues, and they're doing a better job now. It's interesting. I'd be interested to know the overlap on depression, too, because some of these really scary stories of, like, Junior Seau committing Mm -hmm. suicide and some of those, how much of that might be depression because you're no longer a football player your identity for a majority of your life is the sport and now you're not able to do it that's yeah one versus given. brain injury well for sure. right. it's a per- together it's a perfect storm i mean it's both right so you know you're more likely to be depressed you're more likely to have uh, depression because your your career has ended um so yeah it's 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 a situation and you, know, you think about these uh, players who are still playing like this antonio brown who just seemed to all of a sudden just go off the deep end and started doing crazy stuff you have to kind of look at that like you know and i'm not making a diagnosis and i don't want phone calls but you know is this something that that maybe he's got some stuff going on there where his impulse control is is messed up you know where he'll go from the the raiders and say i don't want to be here anymore and go to the patriots and mess that up where can we go to find these great resources if i have a child who needs to be evaluated after a concussion my kids are too old looks like my daughter's soccer season her last soccer season is being canceled right now well they should come to st peter's I mean, obviously. So no, it uh, you know, CDC website's really good. Um, they've got a lot of good information, and it's it's you know obviously I always caution people to go on the internet because you're not gonna the people who do well and get better in two weeks aren't gonna report their stories on the internet. Um, but the CDC website is obviously very well vetted, um, and uh, I would recommend that your athletic trainer, you know, for those high school kids is absolutely the number one best source of of resource for this. Um, and then, you know, if, if they do need a doctor and they're, you know, within driving distance of St. Charles County, I'm happy to take a look. And then Miss Kinsey, you get into the picture from professionals like Dr. Larkin and, and other professionals in, that specialize in concussions, right? Yep. So the time has come, doctor. Our favorite part I don't know. of every podcast. So Dr. Larkin doesn't probably know anything <laughs> about this section of the podcast. He should get excited. Um, he should. Um, titillated so <laughs> this is called getting hammered oh okay i've done this one before <laughs> so this is a special getting hammered because we have two guests and they will both have to answer the same question Ooh. Ooh, are you gonna okay. make fun of their answers uh, Hopefully i will never i will treat dr larkin with the utmost respect <laughs> kinsey is Sorry, no kinsey. <laughs> kinsey's free game so five questions wrap um, not necessarily rapid answer, but you know, your first best answer, you don't have to think about it. Um, and, uh, five questions, just your best first answer. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Getting hammered with Dr. Brandon Larkin and Miss Kinsey Schaus. Did I say that right? I'm ready. Oh, yeah. All right. Perfect. You nailed it. This is, this is the most nervous I've been <laughs> in the last hour. Nothing, <laughs> no, nothing to be nervous about. All right. Question number one. You guys pick the order in which you're answering. Flip a coin. Ladies first. Oh. 
Question number one. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, super speed. Do I have to explain myself, super speed? I think we get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's wrong, but I think oh. we get it. Um, here's <laughs> Some the, of us already have that. Here is the, <laughs> here's the correct answer. Um, stopping time. Wow. You can do anything if you can stop time, right? I would get enough sleep, right? I wouldn't need super speed because I could just stop everybody else and get where I needed to go pretty quickly. So I think it's about fair. that. Yeah. That's a strong answer. <laughs> Jeff. I've put in way too much thought into that. That is an answer I can support. See, he we made, he never mind. I crucify he her didn't every like time. Your answer because of her answer. He yeah. calls me Rosetta Stone now. <laughs> she but, she said right. she wanted to speak every language and, and understand I, every every I told, language. My argument was she could learn how to do that now yeah. if you just took the time. So well, or, if you could or stop time, right? You'd have time to learn, or you could just use Google Translate, which is just easier. Yeah, it's yeah. not accurate all the time. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Another person in here that supports me with my decision. Okay. But that's your decision. That's fine. You can have that power. Hey, right. Moving on. All right. <laughs> Question number two. If you could have any three people, dead or alive, over for dinner, who would it be? Oh, man. Any three people. Should I go first on this one? Yeah. I need some time. Um, hmm. I've got an unhealthy affection for uh, Matt Damon, so uh, that's one for sure. Um, huh. Yeah. <laughs> this might <laughs> require some follow-up questions, but all right, yeah, go ahead. No, it's just a, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, my wife has an unhealthy um, affection for Willie McGee, uh, center fielder for the Cardinals. Um, she likes doing backflips, too. Yeah. No. Um <laughs> Dead or alive? Dead or alive. All right, you do too, and I'm going to think of my last one. All right. First one, Mia Hamm, the soccer soccer player. Number 10. Yes. Yes. Um, second one, Jennifer Aniston. That's funny. That was on my list. <laughs> I think for different reasons, maybe. <laughs> Third one, I feel like I need a comedian there for comedy. Maybe, uh, I don't know, like a Will Ferrell. To keep the entertainment up. That's a strong choice. Yeah, yeah I can't go for that think about anybody else but Jennifer Aniston now, so I'll, <laughs> I'll take that one. <laughs> Shout out to yeah. Jennifer Aniston if you're in St. Louis. We'd like to have dinner with you. <laughs> Hope you have a concussion. Yeah. We got the people for you. <laughs> Question number three. If there was a book about your life, what would the title be? Oh, that's My tough. goodness. Holy cow. I know mine. Go share since you want to. From Cadillac to Similac, or from Similac to Cadillac. <laughs> I like a, Cadillac to Similac a, better for you. A young man's journey into fatherhood. <laughs> wow. I, How can I follow that? I wanted one? to write that book. Yeah. Oh, good golly. I, I think it uh, probably is, this will probably help you poop. <laughs> and, and oh my a goodness good bathroom uh, book <laughs> i like it yeah all in the poop <laughs> answer i don't know <laughs> good bathroom reading um i don't know something like just winging it having fun i don't know something like that fair enough i like it i like it i like it, I like it. question number four if you could get an answer to one question any question what would it be? 
what am I going to do the next month without sports? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> can only listen to people talk about the <laughs> coronavirus for so long. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it back to what is this rash? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Question number five. Your house is on fire, excluding pets and loved ones. What's the one thing you grab? Weighted blanket. I just recently got it. Is it, it really? changed my life. For real? I don't wow. know. I just think I've had the most entertaining dreams since I've gotten that. Deep sleep, maybe? Like Blim- you're being I mean, crushed? Like, yeah. it's just nice. It's like a little cocoon. I assume I'm sleeping better because I'm dreaming more than ever. Simply the best answer. <laughs> it's a heavy thing to be dragging out of the yeah. brain home. But, okay. You're, um, I mean, I, the the practical answer is the all the the laptop with the with the pictures of the kids on it. But um, I caught a foul ball once. I'd probably want that. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Well, we've done Ms. it again. <laughs> once again, Miss Kinsey. They haven't Schultz. fallen asleep. <laughs> they haven't. They haven't been. We we haven't had to medicate them. This is a this is a first. Very professional. <clears throat> I don't think so. <laughs> Everybody's also always surprised. <laughs> so, Dr. Brandon Larkin, you are reachable at Advanced Bone and Joint. Bone and Joint in St. Peter's, Missouri. I will put a link uh, to your website Perfect. on the uh, podcast so folks can find you and your phone number. And Miss Kinsey Schaus, you are available at Core Physical Therapy in Wentzville, Missouri. I'm in the Wing Haven. Or, excuse me, location. Wing Haven. Yep. You are available at Core Physical Therapy in Winghaven, and uh, we'll put a link there for you as well awesome. if people have questions or uh, need your, either of y'all's services, they can reach you. We appreciate you guys uh, stopping by. We uh, enjoyed chatting with you about uh, concussions. Until next time, this has been Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd.